0: Roxanne, welcome to the HVMN headquarters. And it's really an honor to speak to the world's fastest ascent and descent of Mount Everest. Congratulations.
1: Thank you so much. It's really great to be here.
0: I think all of us know that Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world, definitely a feat to climb and survive and, and not die. I mean, I and mean, unfortunately, I think the day that you summited, folks were, I mean, perished. Um, but it would be helpful to get a sense of what the typical time scale looks like and why what you did in in terms of climbing and returning back home within two weeks uh how much of the improvement how 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 much in i guess the standard deviation or the or the difference how big was that magnitude
1: Yeah, so standard Everest expeditions are usually in the range of about two months, anywhere from, you know, maybe 50 days up to 70 days, kind of depending on weather and everything. Um, And that's just how it's always been done because you have to go and spend a certain amount of time on the mountain acclimatizing to high altitude and you do multiple rotations up the mountain and come back down and rest and recover and then push further up the mountain and so on and so forth. So most, um, most tours will do, you know, two or three rotations up and down the mountain before they actually make a summit attempt. So that's why it takes so long. Um, and you're, by doing this, mitigating kind of the chances that you'll get altitude illness or cerebral edema or pulmonary edema, things like that, that can be potentially life-threatening. Um, so
0: you quartered that time.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, there have been other groups. And so, for instance, the group that I went with through uh, for logistics is Alpenglow Expeditions, and they operate on the north side from Tibet. And they've kind of pioneered this rapid ascent protocol where they have cut the time essentially in half. So they are doing trips now in 35 days. Um, so all of their members who climb with them get a pre-acclimatization protocol before they even leave wherever they come from and they use hypoxic tents and uh, essentially kind of pre-acclimate before Mm. they hit the mountain and in that way cut the time in half and so I contacted them to find out more about this system and uh, it kind of spun out of control from there because I'm a big science nerd and I was fascinated with the technology and wanted to try it out but um, yeah so we went if even more aggressive than that we were like well if it can be done in you know a month or so then why can't it be done in a couple of weeks and and that's how we got on this yeah
0: journey. so for folks that might not be as be aware of the mountain or mountaineering could you describe and i think people know of base camp there's like camps in between the summits and base camp i know even getting the base camp that some people you know count as an accomplishment because it is still quite high there um and you're describing like the typical protocols on like people, you know, go up the base camp and camp 1, come back down. Can you describe like the typical path?
1: Yeah, so um, the standard route is traditionally through Nepal. Um, so what happens is people generally go and they'll fly into Kathmandu and then they'll take a smaller flight into this town called Lukla, which is, I believe it's just below 10,000 feet or so. It's maybe 9,000 feet. And from there, they'll start a trek for about 10 days, which will take them progressively higher up to base camp. And base camp is about 17,000, 17,500. It just depends on the year because it can you know, shift a little bit in location. Yeah. Um, and that's where you will essentially start your Everest bid from Um, so once you get to base camp you spend a lot of time in base camp it's like a small village so there's tents there's generators so you have you know electricity and things like this here Um, and then you'll start going up to higher camps and on the south side there are usually four camps in place, um, so camps one through four, and then most people will, again, make rotations up, so they'll go up to, like, camp two, come back down, rest at base camp, maybe go up to camp three, come back down, rest at base camp, and then um, go all the way up to camp four, and then make a launch at the summit from camp four, and um, so, you know, Everest is 29,000 feet, I believe, camp four on the south side, and I could be wrong on this because I climbed from the north, but I believe camp four on Everest is at about Twenty six thousand feet. I could be a little bit off there, um, but yeah. So you'll you'll essentially ascend about like three thousand feet on summit day and then come down to a lower camp. Right. Um, so that's why it does take so long. Um, and on the north side, it's kind of a similar but you don't have the trek into base camp. So you can actually drive to base camp there. It's about the same height, so about 17,000 feet. Right. So like when I landed, for instance, we drove straight to base camp. And so I got off the plane and was at 17,000 feet the same day, so it's <laughs> pretty high. Yeah. Um, we went up to as high as camp two, and then we kind of launched our attempt from there. So because we were on a very short timeline, we skipped camps and just went straight for the summit. So it was a very long summit day on our yeah. side, but similar kind of strategy if you were to climb it from the north, you know, there's a base camp and then higher camps. Yeah,
0: yeah I mean, it's fascinating. Again, starting at 17,000 feet, I mean, that's three miles up. And I just know that, you know when people go, you know, skiing and it's you're on like, you know, Tahoe or something. I mean, that's probably what, like, five to eight thousand feet up, and people get altitude sickness there. So you're double that mm-hmm. instantly before getting to the technicals of the of, of the trek. I it might, I think it might be interesting to just step back a little bit and uh, understand a little bit of your 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 backstory and history. I mean. Obviously, one doesn't just wake up and decide to, you know, ascend, descend Mount Everest in two weeks and, and, and make a new world record. How did you get interested initially into extreme physiology, uh, I, I, extreme mountaineering, extreme sports? Uh, what, when did you realize you maybe had a talent or interest in this?
1: It's really pretty funny because I grew up in San Diego, California. So I was a beach kid. Uh, My family is not very outdoorsy and I was kind of, you know, the apple that fell (laughs) way off the tree and they still wonder to this day, they're just like, what happened? (laughs) Um, But honestly, I think the way it started was when I was doing my undergraduate degree and I studied abroad in Peru I went and did the Inca Trail and we did a trek to Machu Picchu, which was the first time I'd ever been up to like 14,000 feet. We went through this pass and, uh, you know, I kind of fell in love with the whole outdoors thing and trekking. And eventually that led to me wanting to do the base camp trek to Mount Everest on the south side. So I went and did the trek to, uh, you know, 17,000 feet through Nepal And I was there and I looked up and saw Everest, saw the Himalaya, and I was just like, God, this is amazing. I need to be climbing these mountains and not just kind of walking around them. Um, So at that point I was supposed to come back to, I was living in North Carolina at the time. I was supposed to come back and do my graduate work there at ECU. I had East Carolina, sorry. Um, I had a a full ride scholarship. I had a assistantship, assistantship position and I was all set to start in the fall. This was during the spring. And instead of doing that, I came back, uh, decided to move to Colorado to be near the mountains and start training and climbing and basically changed my entire life to just focus on this one thing and it was climbing. I didn't know at that point that I would eventually come back and climb Everest. That wasn't like the plan, but uh, it just kind of progressed from there.
0: I mean, that's pretty, I mean, that's pretty drastic to switch. I mean, we just moved to Colorado. I'm I'm sure you found like a different graduate position, but you had to scramble to make that happen, I presume.
1: Well, you know, I didn't actually have a plan in place. My (laughs) friend lived there. And so I went and, you know, crashed with her for a little bit, you know, did some digging around, eventually ended up getting a second bachelor's while I was there. Wow. Um, So you
0: were just, oh, I want to prioritize my climbing skills over your academic path.
1: And yeah, and, wow. and eventually things fell into place and I did get my master's degree, um, albeit it was in Texas, which is kind of a long story. But uh, yeah, at the time I didn't really have a, a plan for my education. I was just like, this is what I need to be doing. Something in me was like, Whoa. Y- you need to go and, and pursue this passion. So I did.
0: So like Everest nece- wasn't necessarily the goal, but you knew you wanted to be sort of a explorer, climber, mountaineer, and Colorado's a good place that build up a base level of fitness and and experience
1: yeah exactly i I, just something within me was like you know it's corny and you know you hear the quote all the time like the mountains are calling and i must go but really that's how i felt and it's interesting um, was it
0: any specific mountain i mean you said it wasn't necessarily everest that was calling it was just any like mountains i want to climb these things
1: yeah, I was like, what do I need to do to start climbing high yeah. mountains? Like, I was really fascinated by the high peaks, by the altitude. I had done really well with altitude. And, yeah. you know, being at base camp, 17,000 feet was the highest I'd ever been. And I felt great physically. Hmm. And I was like, there's something to this because a lot of other people I was looking around at people I was trekking with and they were getting sick and they felt terrible. And I was like, well, maybe I like have a knack for this altitude thing. And, again i'm kind of this physiology nerd going back a few steps like i was supposed to be studying exercise physiology in grad school and yeah. so um you know part of me was also fascinated by like what is the science behind this how do i adapt better than some other people and why is that and so you know the nerd in me also wanted to kind of figure out what was happening and going to colorado i was Not only at altitude in Denver, you know, that's a mile above sea level, but I had access to 14,000 foot mountains, which you don't really get anywhere else.
0: So what were some of the intermediate mountains or accomplishments you did?
1: Yeah, it was kind of just like a gradual build. Um, And I also come from a like a training philosophy background. Like I've been a personal trainer, strength and conditioning coach, things like that. So I knew, you know, the progression had to make sense. It had to be moderate and you had to, you know, build on skills and things like this. So I started with, you know, the Colorado 14ers, which are essentially mountains that are 14,000 feet. You can hike or walk up um and from there i went and did kilimanjaro in tanzania so it was 19000 feet so again the highest i'd ever been felt great it's mostly a walk up a hike um, then next mountain I really started training for was Aconcagua down in South America, which is just under 23,000 feet. So it's the highest you can get outside of the Himalaya. Okay. Um, so.
0: And did you have to do like ice picks for that one?
1: Right. Yeah. So okay. that was the first time I knew I needed to get some kind of like mountaineering skills. Okay. And so for that mountain, I did actually go and take a mountaineering course with this group called Alpine Ascents up in the North Cascades, um, learned how to use an ice axe and crampons and camp and, you know, glaciers and um, all of those sort of uh, fundamental skills, walking yeah. in a rope team and things like that. So yeah. That
0: step, I feel like it's the chasm that most people will never cross. Like walking up or hiking up Kilimanjaro, I think uh, obviously it's like the tallest peak in Africa, definitely an accomplishment, but it's a walk up. You can hike up. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you know that you wanted to go and like, okay, I'm gonna like figure out how to like do ice picks and ice, I guess ropes and all that. I mean, that seems like, a different level of okay like this is going to be like semi-professional level training right like people that do that it feels like it's definitely crossing the threshold of like I'm a kind of an amateur fit person that's going to climb up Kilimanjaro on my two-week vacation.
1: It, I mean it's a bit more of a commitment obviously like time and, and financial and all of that and I think a lot of people who get into mountaineering either like their family's kind of into it and so they get skills that way just right. by knowing people or their friends are into where they grow up in these regions where it's normal to go and, and climb and yeah. you know, be a little more technical, use ice tools and things like that. Um, but I didn't have that background and I didn't have those acquaintances or at least ones that I felt like I could go and learn from and, and be really safe about right. it. Um, and so for me, just Signing up for a course and going by myself was the easiest way to do it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, a lot of people aren't going to, you know, make that jump. But I knew I wanted to go higher. And I knew the only way to do it safely was to get some proper skills so that I didn't hurt myself.
0: Okay. So 23K South America, how many years ago was that?
1: So that was 20. Um, 20- the end of 2014 and then we summited in January of 2015. Okay. So I started this kind of um, trajectory of doing one big climb per year. So okay. it started with Kilimanjaro in 2013 and then, uh, you know, Aconcagua the year after that. And then once I was on that path, it was like, oh, well, this is how you do all of the seven summits or the seven highest you yeah. know, peak on each continent. And so I figured, well, you might as well just keep going with that. And so um, the next one after that would be Denali in Alaska and that is definitely like not something you mess around with like that is a very tough mountain very harsh conditions it's a long expedition it's like 3 weeks on a glacier, you know, you get dropped off by this plane and you're not getting off until the plane comes back for you. So it's a lot of gear. It's super heavy. You're walking over crevasses and you're pulling a sled. So I'm, you know, carrying between my pack and my sled more weight than I actually weigh. Um, So that was definitely one where I had to train my butt off for. And um, it was after I, I summited Denali successfully in 2016 that Everest actually in my mind became a possibility because yeah. I know a lot of people who had climbed Everest already came to Denali and said, Denali is actually a little bit harder than Everest. Um, so, you know, in my mind, I was like, well, I can maybe do this.
0: Yeah. You know, I don't have any mountaineering experience, but you know, I've seen some documentaries and, and stories around Everest and Sherpas. And it sounds like within recent years, it's become more of a tourist destination where folks aren't necessarily training like you know building up that years of experience just having sherpas essentially pull them up but it's not like you were very methodical in terms of building out actual skills and confidence to actually do it properly
1: yeah it it, you know it is kind of unfortunate and there definitely is that stigma of um you know people go to everest unprepared and get hauled up by sherpa and things like that um but yeah my preparation i actually I think one of the things I love most about climbing is the preparation part. Yeah. And I love training and I love setting out a plan for myself and, and executing it perfectly. Right. Like a yeah. very methodical. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, training became a part-time job for me, especially for Everest. I was training yeah. more than 20 hours a week and, uh, I loved every minute of yeah. it.
0: So 2016 Denali. So what was 17 and what was 18? Because this was obviously 2019.
1: Yeah, so 2017, I went over to Russia and climbed Elbrus, um, so the highest peak there. And, uh, you know, that one was, it's like 18,500. It didn't feel very super challenging compared to, say, Denali.
0: Yeah. Um, How tall is Denali?
1: Denali is uh, just over 20,000 feet. Okay. So, you know, not the highest. It wasn't higher than Aconcagua, but it's tough because it's, you know, Bicarious. really cold yeah. and weather and yeah. super heavy, and you're just out on a glacier forever. Elbrus was 2017 and then, um, 2018 I went down. So it's, it's kind of funny. There are a couple of lists of seven summits and they differ in this one peak, which is down in the South Pacific. So one list says that it's the highest peak on Australia, which is Mount Kosciuszko, which is about, you know, 7,000 feet. It's a walk up. Um, so I did that, but then there's another list that says, well, no, it's not the highest peak on it on Australia. It's the highest peak on that, you know, uh, Reaching. tectonic plate yeah, yeah. so it's it's uh karsten's pyramid which is in indonesia which is a really cool it's more of a rock climbing route so it's definitely huh. more technical so i had to train separately for that and i did both of them in 2018 because i was like well you know i don't want to be wrong so i'm gonna do both
2: yeah
1: um but it's it's definitely like more of a rock climb and then there's this um there's this notch in the ridge line up to the summit where it's like a uh, two or 3000 foot drop off. You're on these like wire cables. It used to be a Tyrolean traverse, which is like, you know, if you think of the movie cliffhanger and he's like pulling himself underneath the wire across, yeah. now you just walk over this thin cable, but it's like super sketchy and blowing in the breeze. And it's just like this really <laughs> thrilling and um, uh, exciting climb. And that one's about, you know, 16, 17,000 feet. But so I did both in 2018 and that was down in the South Pacific, but really cool.
0: So Do you don't have any fear for heights
1: oh sure I do I I do but you just like I don't know I I'm people ask me a lot they're like how do you deal with some of these things like you know we'll talk about the the Everest climb and there's this really crux part that's called the second step that's super horrifying um I don't know I get to the worst part of a climb and for some reason like I just like my mind shuts off and I just act and I just move so yeah
0: fascinating I mean, that it's, it's 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 interesting to shut down that primal fear in terms of like phobias or just like your physical danger. And I think it's like easy for us to sit here and intellectualize. Oh yeah, like it's you just take a step. Like you just imagine you're on you know sea level. But there there does seem to be an animal instinct when you're like super far up that you just cannot control. But it sounds like you either figure out how to control that, or your response to that height is muted compared to other people? Do you think it's a combination of both or you trained it up?
1: I don't think I'm the type of person who's just fearless. I really don't. And I, I think I do have a normal amount of fear of heights. So I think it's something like I, I did actually use some mental training strategies leading into Everest, um, you know, visualization techniques and, um I would look at this part in the route which I knew was going to be kind of the most challenging part, the scariest okay. part, and so I mentally prepared so that when I got there I was like ready to to go for it. But yeah. um Interesting. Yeah.
0: So let's talk about that. So we're up until the Everest climb. Um and I want to talk about how you prepare and how you train for it. I mean, obviously I think when you you talk about preparation there's nu- the nutrition component is obviously one massive lever. And then the training component is probably the second, if not more important, but equally important lever. And then there's probably different little technological hacks. I know you've done, you know, you're, you're mentioning hypoxic sleeping and all of that. Um, so uh, let's walk through each of those big categories of preparation. Um, but before entering that, I mean, why was 2019 the time? I mean, it sounded like you were making your way methodically through each continent, knocking off, checking off the the peak of that continent. Um, obviously, you're starting to run out of continents by 2019. Um, was it just getting confidence through your previous experiences that 2019 was the year that you're going to do Everest? Um, it sounded like there was an opportunity to do this lightning ascent that was fairly timely. How that world record attempt for your first Everest climb come together.
1: Again, I had been on this trajectory of about one mountain per year. And so, you know, 2019 was going to be the year for Everest and, and why I didn't do Antarctica first. Um, actually Antarctica is a lot harder and a little bit more expensive to get to, to be quite honest. So I was (laughs) like, well, let's just, let's just go for Everest in 2019. And, um, I didn't have a plan of trying to do like a lightning ascent or set a world record or anything like that. I was just going to go and climb it doing kind of a standard protocol. Um, and I started working at, uh, the company I'm with now, Goo Energy Labs here in Berkeley, uh, in 2017. And when I started working there, I was, um, doing research on, um, training for high altitude races because I was working with some of our athletes who, you know, train and compete in these races, like in Leadville and things like that. And we installed a hypoxic chamber in our gym at work. And so that kind of got my wheels spinning. And, Um, I started using the hypoxic chamber to train for different mountains. So I was also climbing kind of other mountains at the same time as like checking these mountains off my list. Like I would go down to South America and do some high volcanoes down there. Um, And so I decided to start using the hypoxic chamber to cut the amount of time I needed to be you know, on expeditions. And so that's what kind of started this whole idea of doing Everest faster because I was finding that I could do other high peaks faster, like anywhere from 19,000 feet up to just under 23,000 feet. We did this climb down in South America, Ojos del Salado. So um, did that in like five days, which normally takes about 15 to 18. And so I was thinking like, if I can do this, then, you know, I can at least do Everest in like half the amount of time. Why not? and. So anyways, that's how we got to Everest in 2019, and I learned about Adrian Ballinger and Alpenglow, that they were already kind of doing this technique on the north side, and so I contacted him, and um, he told me he was looking for somebody to try uh, a 14-day that he thought it could be done, and... uh, Because they were doing, what, 35 days? They were doing 35 days at the time, very successfully for a few years, Um, and at first I just kind of like laughed it off. I was like, yeah, you're crazy. Like good luck finding somebody. Um, that was the end of the conversation. And, um, I thought about it for a few days and you know, the nerd in me was just like, I wonder if it can be done. Like that would be so cool from a physiology perspective, like just to see what happens to the human body. If you try and do something that aggressive, so I call him back and I'm like, "Well, what do you think about me? Like, I I could maybe do this." And he was like, "Yeah, why not? You've already like done you know similar things on other high peaks and and yeah, absolutely." And so that's how we decided on the lightning ascent and um, and yeah, it was it was terrifying and I had no idea if it would work out. And honestly, I thought maybe we had a Ten to thirty percent chance of success wow. going into it. Legitimately, that's what I thought our our was. What was the were. previous
0: fastest ascent?
1: Um, the previous fastest ascent was um, another gentleman who had worked with Adrian, and he had done both choi and Cho is another eight thousand meter peak nearby. Um, Cho Yu and Everest in the same season, but he had climbed. I think it was twenty four to twenty eight days. Okay. So that was kind of like the nearest bar that had been set. So this okay. was very, very aggressive.
0: So it's almost having the previous world record in terms of speed. Right, yeah. Wow, incredible. Yeah. So you touched upon hypoxia training. That's a super interesting training paradigm. Can you describe what was your protocol there? I mean, would you sleep in this hypoxic tent? Would you do workouts? Would you run on a treadmill in this hypoxic chamber? Do you try to stay in that chamber for you know, bring your computer in there and work on your laptop in there? How long, you know, what'd you do with it?
1: Yeah, so we were very fortunate to have the hypoxic chamber installed. So we worked with this company called Hypoxico um, and they've been doing this in various facilities. They have them in like gyms and things now. Um, So we had one installed in in our gym at work at Goo. And it's basically like the size of a laundry room, right? So it's not very big. It's, it's see-through plexiglass. So you're in there and it feels like you're in a fishbowl. Yeah. Um, and it goes up to about eleven, twelve thousand 12,000 feet. So I started with that and I would spend, you know, maybe four hours a day in there working. I had a stand-up desk with my computer. You could do workouts in there. But you know, I knew that wasn't enough. I needed to get as much time as I could in simulated altitude. So I contacted them, and they set me up with a tent system that I could take home and put on my bed. So it really is like your bed goes inside the tent, and then <laughs> you're, you're in a bubble while you're sleeping. And it simulates hypoxia by um, condensing the nitrogen content of the air, so there's less oxygen in the air oh, while you're okay. sleeping. So I would try to spend a minimum of eight hours a night sleeping in hypoxia.
0: Which simulated altitude?
1: Um, it could go anywhere from, I would start out gradually at like 5,000 feet. So the height of about Denver, yeah. Colorado. And yeah. then by the end I was sleeping up to 19, 20,000 feet. So I wanted to get Whoa. at least above base camp, yeah. you know, equivalent. Um, and you can definitely feel it. And it, and it absolutely impacts, you know, your sleep and your life and your, your social situation, whatever it may be. Um, <laughs> Luckily, I'm single, so it's not a big deal. Um,
0: Folks come home, it's like, oh, what's wrong with your <laughs> <right>? bed? <laughs> um,
1: but yeah, I was trying to get between the tent and the and the chamber at work a uh, majority of my day in simulated altitude. So, you know, at least 12 hours a day, I would be in a hypoxic environment. And it's kind of like living in a bubble or a fishbowl. Um, and, and yeah, that was my life for three months before I left.
0: Wow. Fascinating. So typically in hypoxia, you see decrements in cognitive performance, obviously recovery slows down, you're just just not fueling your body with it, you know, the expected amount of oxygen. So in that three month ramp up period, I mean, did you feel more sluggish at work? Did you feel or, you know, did you feel like your day to day life was impacted or did you feel like you adapted to that norm? And obviously it's some ramp up period, but you felt like work performance, physical performance as you're kind of training working out was recovering pretty quickly.
1: You know, I definitely felt the side effects of it, especially as I got into sleeping at some of the higher altitudes. Um, so I'd say above 14,000 feet simulated altitude, I could start to feel a difference in cognitive performance. Like I just would have a little bit harder time finding the right word. For instance, you know, just like a little bit slower in my thought process. Um, I would be a little bit more fatigued during workouts, it seemed. Uh, But I had done this all before, right? So I had done this for other climbs. And so I kind of knew what to expect. So this time I wanted to get ahead of the game. And so I was really strategic with my nutrition and supplementation protocol to do everything I could to not only support recovery from my really hard training schedule, but to also support cognitive performance. And that was something I really wanted to focus on. So I was planning on collecting data on the mountain specific to cognitive function. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of how you and I got in touch, is yeah. because I knew about the research around ketone esters. I had also been following a ketogenic diet for the previous four years leading into this whole expedition. So um, I knew some of the benefits and the, and the supposed benefits for cognitive performance. And so at that point, I not only was eating a diet that kind of supported recovery and cognitive function, but I also started supplementing with uh, ketone esters.
0: Cool. Yeah, let's talk about nutrition. But before then, I know that as you're doing the climb, you're wearing this very sophisticated technical suit that's tracking all your biomarkers. I'm curious, heading into the training, were you tracking heart rate variability, other markers that you're doing the ramp up period into the, into the actual uh, attempt?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So with some of the previous climbs, we had started using this app HRV for training. So I I always use that like every morning to track my heart rate variability and see, you know, where I might need to recover a little more before a hard workout and things like that. So
0: did you see your HRV start compressing as you were going higher and higher in, in altitude? And then did you feel like did that ever recover down to baseline as you got more acclimatized
1: yeah so it definitely like my hrv status definitely declines with um you know increases in altitude that i'm sleeping at right so i could always see that no matter what um with each trip that i'd be using the hypoxic tense um and and then when you actually get to real altitude like it's it's suppressed even further right so you're you're your score is just not so great, so but it doesn't
0: recover. You don't see some acclimatization where your HRV starts, uh, you know, climbing back to normal.
1: Not really, because I'm always progressively pushing the altitude okay. a little bit, okay. and then when you get to actual altitude, you get, you know, not only the hypoxic stimulus, but you also get a hypobaric stimulus, right? So uh, decreased yeah. pressure, yeah. which is another additional stress on the body. So yeah. like that pushes it even a little further into okay. like a stress response mode. Okay. Um, but yeah, so heart rate variability, I've been tracking for a long time. Uh I track glucose both with a continuous glucose monitor at times and then also uh I use like the little handheld I'll track my ketones and my glucose. Interesting. Mhm. And then I also How does how yeah.
0: does altitude affect the glucose metabolism?
1: Yeah, it 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 definitely upregulates the amount of carbohydrate you're burning and so it can definitely mess with your glucose levels. Um and so, you know, sometimes you'll see like a higher fasting glucose response and things like that. Generally for me, mine stays pretty stable, but I also have been on like a low carb diet for a long time. Yeah. Um and so my my glucose levels are super stable. Even I'm I'm wearing like the continuous glucose monitor and I'll even eat things strategically or take things strategically to see if it'll spike my glucose levels, right. but it really doesn't. Like I'm I'm really pretty stable. Interesting. Yeah.
0: So it's like rock solid around what? I'm just curious in terms of like 80 milligrams or deciliter or
1: fasting yeah. or, um, yeah. I mean it'll be like in the high 70s okay. and as high as maybe like 85 if okay. I'm not recovered or something like that. Yeah, like it's it's pretty stable.
0: Yeah, interesting. And then what are your ketone levels when you're? I mean that's pre, like that's like decently low glucose levels.
1: Yeah, I mean normally I think my fasting glucose levels are anywhere from like 0. 0.6 to um you know two oh, or so, ketones fasting, yeah. and glu- or fasting ketones fasting ketones okay. yeah so just so kind you're, of you're like
0: nicely solid in nutritional ketosis mm-hmm.
1: and cool. i eat a decent amount of carbs for you know for someone who does a low carb diet like right. i'll i'll eat 100 grams of carbs a day sometimes yeah mostly vegetables but yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, you're burning so much calories. Like, yeah. I think that's like one thing that folks that are maybe less sophisticated ketogenic diet don't realize is that if you're expending that much energy, you can maintain ketosis when you're, you know, ramping up some carbohydrate. And it's probably smart to do so. Absolutely, to not start, you know, burning actual lean muscle tissue.
1: That and like I, I've been experimenting on myself for a long time, like N of one stuff, but (laughs) I, and I work for a company that makes carbs for sports, you know? Um, So I, I've experimented with up to taking in, you know, 300 grams of carbs during a really long run. Maybe I'm out there for like five hours on the trails and I'll bounce back right into nutritional ketosis within a couple hours afterwards. So yeah, let's talk about
0: nutrition. I mean, obviously you have a a tremendous background with goo. Obviously you have experimented a lot with ketone esters that, you know, from, from our company, um, and it sounds like you've done ketogenic diets for the last four years. So did you change your diet? I mean, what, in terms of a ketogenic diet, obviously folks are, some folks are doing more carnivorous versions of that. Um, it sounds like you, I mean, we talked a little bit beforehand. That's a little bit scary for you. you I'm curious in terms of like your, your makeup of a ketogenic diet and did you change it for the Everest, uh, protocol?
1: Yeah. So I started messing around with lower carb diet in, um, in 2014. And then I went like full keto probably by like 2015 and then followed a pretty strict ketogenic diet up until 2017, I'd say. Um, so aiming for less than like 50 grams of carbs per day. Um, And then I started working at Goo, which is like the opposite, right? Like I was surprised they hired me because I was like fully transparent with them when they were interviewing me. I was like, yeah, I I follow low-carb lifestyle. I don't do carbs. You guys make (laughs) carbs. Like, (laughs) are you sure, you want to hire me. But they did. Um, So anyways, I start working for them in 2017. And and what was the
0: initial goal for keto? Just performance endurance or body comp or or. It longevity, was, health span.
1: I think it was a combination of longevity. Um, I have a history, a family history of, um, diabetes and, um, I was just a little bit concerned about that and also body composition. And at the time I was doing mostly weight training. And so I wasn't doing a ton of, cardio. And so I didn't feel like I needed all the extra carbs, you know? So I was like, well, I mean, let's give it a shot and see how I feel. I was working at a company called Muscle Farm at the time in Denver and, um, met some brilliant researchers there, uh, Jordan Joy, who does a lot with ketogenic diet. And he's the one who kind of got me started on that. So I was like, I'll try it, you know, science, sure. end of one, absolutely. And I felt great on it. Um, and it was easy for me to kind of adhere to. And so it just made sense for me for a long time. Um, so anyways, coming back 2017, I start working at goo carb company and I start getting more into endurance and then ultra endurance, right? So really long trail runs, trail races, things like that. So I'm out there for hours on end and I'm like, I need to be taking in some carbs. Um, you just do. And so, um, my diet did change a little bit. I started eating more on like the vegetable side. So, you know, I did start eating more carbs overall, but they were generally from vegetable sources. Um, And so that was kind of the diet that I rolled into training for Everest with. Uh, So it's a really high protein. I really do strategize protein primarily because I want to recover and give my body the amino acids it needs to rebuild itself. And so I'd say it's a high protein, high fat. So probably around 50% of calories come from fat. And, um, you know, maybe 20% of my calories tops are coming from carbs, but mostly vegetables, some fruit, not a lot, mostly just berries. Um, but yeah, that was, that was kind of what I started with going into Everest. I did change it a little bit cause I wanted to focus really on, um, antioxidant defense systems and things like that. So I started strategically trying to get more cruciferous vegetables in lots of berries Dark chocolate, one, because I love it, but, you know, also like polyphenols and things like that. Um, So I was very specific in that approach. I started eating more fermented foods, um, focusing on gut health. Um, like kimchi, natto. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Like kimchi and sauerkraut. I pretty much eat one or both every day. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Yeah. Um, and we like, we'll ferment our own things. Like we'll make kombucha at work. Um, we'll make our own kimchi and and ferment hot sauce. I want to make kimchi.
0: That sounds fun.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So all
1: about the fermented foods, um, focusing on gut health, not only just for, you know, digestive issues, but also for what it can do for your brain and cognitive function and things like that. Um, how about
0: your fat and protein sources? What, I mean, what were you primarily focused on there?
1: Um, so I started eating a lot of, uh, salmon and tuna, so I'll probably have one or the other every day. Um, really trying to get some omega threes again, helping with inflammation and, and brain function. Um, I try to nowadays, and when I was doing full keto, I was eating a lot more red meat and, um, even things like bacon and stuff, you know, as a lot of ketoers will do. Uh, But nowadays I've really kind of moved away from that, not because I think it's bad per se, but um, I just have started focusing more on um, like seafood and poultry and eggs and things like that. So um, that's primarily where I'm getting my protein from. I'll try to get like 30 grams in each meal. Uh, I always do a post-workout recovery protein, and that's generally going to be like a whey hydrolysate. Um, so my master's research was on different protein sources and how they're digested, absorbed and utilized by the body. And whey protein hydrolysis is, uh, you know, by the far superior uptake. in my mind. Yeah. Quickest uptake. There's, Versus like casein or, or mm-hmm. okay. yeah. So it's a fast absorbing, um, and because it's already partially digested, essentially it, uh, it crosses the, the intestinal barrier faster than intact, fully intact protein. So even faster than just like a whey isolate, you know, and there are bioactive components to some of these peptides, these little shorter amino acid chains that are broken down that confer health benefits beyond just, you know, helping rebuild tissues, like, you know, things with hypertension and, and just all sorts of things. So hydrolysis are fascinating. And that's, again, what I did my uh, master's work on. So very partial to whey protein hydrolysate. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so cool. So you had a like a seafood-heavy ketogenic diet or like a low-carb diet coming into the in, into the Everest attempt. And then did you change that going into the like the three months ahead of time? Um, did you start thinking about doing fasted workouts or did you think about periodizing your your nutrition? Because obviously, when you're climbing, uh, there's depression of appetite, some of these concerns that happens in, hy- in hypoxic environments. Um, how do you start varying nutrition as you got closer and closer to the attempt?
1: Yeah, so really interesting, actually. I started in December working with a group called Uphill Athlete, and um, one of our sponsored athletes, his name is Steve House, started this company with his coach, who's Scott Johnston. And so I reached out to them. They train all of the best, you know, mountaineers, alpinists, climbers in the world. And I figured if I was ever going to hire a coach, this was the time, right? Like I wanted to have everything in my arsenal so that I could make this successful. And so I reached out to them, started training with them, and they had me do a lot of fasted training. And for me, coming from a you know a sports nutrition background, working for a sports nutrition company, we make products to eat while you're exercising. Yeah. And they're telling me like, okay, go out for five hours and don't eat anything. I was yeah. just like, what the hell? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Torture, I mean, it's tough. I've done some <laughs> faster workouts. it's not fun because you just like, t- you start tired.
1: Yeah, but yeah, so I did it. You know, like yeah. I did everything they told me to do. They said jump, I jumped. And um, you know, I got into these fasted workouts, and it was gradual. It wasn't like they told me to go run five hours fasted the yeah. first day. But um, I, I actually found that it wasn't bad. I was, I was doing just fine. And makes
0: sense. I mean, you were keto adapted at the time, right? You need yeah. diet, so you, your fat oxidation was probably just nicely in, in in flow.
1: But I was amazed at how much better it got. You know, above and beyond just being fat adapted from like being on a low carb diet, yeah. I have we have at um goo energy we have our own physiology lab which uh you know I have access to a metabolic cart so you can uh, measure your metabolism yes. yeah. see what kind of calories you're burning how many calories you're burning yeah. no matter what you're doing and it's portable which is really awesome so
0: what was your RQ coming in or did you do respiratory quotient and yeah. start t- testing your, your 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 crossover points exactly okay so
1: I would test periodically so I started testing before I was training with them and then at a midpoint and then right before I left and like the results were mind-blowing like I was so impressed. Um, You know, before I was a pretty good fat burner. Um, My crossover was at a good point, you know, pretty far to the right if you're looking at the graph, right? Like it was it was decent. And I felt like I always felt like it should have been better. Okay. considering I was a low-carb diet. Right, so yeah. like,
0: okay, let's let's break it down a little bit. So there's that two components. What we talk about with RQ, respiratory quotient, it's the ratio between CO2 expelled and O2 coming in, and that's a good marker for how what you're burning in terms of fuel. Right. So 1.0 RQ is carb burning, 0.7 is fat burning. Mm-hmm. So where'd you start off with, and then what'd you end up at?
1: You know, I think the actual number was something like, or something. And then by the time I got to the midway point, so this is like March, I test myself. it was 100% fat burning. So I was at like 0.7. Sometimes it would go below 0.7. Yeah. And I was just like, is the cart broken? Like, yeah. what is happening? Yeah. So even up to a really high intensity. So we would do this ramp protocol where I'd be walking on a very steep incline at a steady pace, but we would just keep ramping it up. And I would get up to, you know, 21% maybe during a normal test. And i have been testing for years because I have access to this, you know, equipment at the lab. By the time I was at the midpoint, I was adding levels to the test because i was like still 100 percent fat burning you know what i mean like i was just like i'm not even tired yet like yeah. what is happening incredible yeah so, so the
0: crossover point is typically when you go from fat burning to lactate burning which is typically a way to measure vo2 max and then some percentage of that is when you start seeing some crossover point so i it sounds like your crossover point to vo2 max is basically
1: i didn't hit a crossover point
0: okay so your vo2 max is still 100 fat burning basically
1: well it wasn't 100 but it was like so the crossover you're burning 50 50 right so when you hit that crossover point your body is burning 50 percent of its calories from carbs 50 percent right. from fat and then it goes exponentially higher into carbohydrates right. the higher the intensity right. you push right. so i never actually hit a crossover at that midpoint test and i was just like you know at 25 percent incline because we have a treadmill that right. goes up to like 40 percent right. like straight up basically yeah. and i was just like okay well and i guess it's like over you felt like
0: you were at 100 percent effort or close yeah to, as 100 percent as possible it
1: was close my heart rate was at like 183 or something like that like it was pretty high you know uh,
0: so that's pretty that's fascinating so you're basically like oh, it was like maximal load yeah. and you were still predominantly fat burning yeah it's cool yeah. Very cool.
1: So really cool results from the fasted yeah. training. You know, that's what I attributed it to. And and also it's just being fitter. I got so much fitter. I, you know, I when I go, went into the training with them in December, I had spent the entire summer that year running ultra marathons like every three to five weeks. Yeah. I was just, you know, trying to get a big aerobic base because yeah. I knew I'd be training with them and I wanted to be super fit. Right. So I thought I was pretty fit going into it. But I got so much fitter training with them. I just couldn't even believe it. And so a large component of how much fat you're able to burn as an athlete is, is actually just your aerobic training status. So just being fitter makes you a better fat burner. You know, there are things like, you know, you get more mitochondria, so you have a greater capacity to burn, like more, you know, factories to burn fuel in. Um, So all of these things kind of contributed to it. But I think the fasted training not only did it make me a better fat burner, but in the end saved my butt like I'm, i'll get into that story later but yeah. yeah it was it was i'm really glad that they did it that way
0: yeah so you mentioned ketone esters and other supplements so how did ketone esters incorporate into your routine what did other supplements i imagine there's were you strategic using carbs you know goo stuff other people's stuff i mean how did all the other things come into play here
1: Yeah. So I definitely see carbohydrates as like a strategic supplement. Um, so for instance, goo products I would use kind of strategically if I was doing a high intensity workout, um, maybe taking like a gel or something before something really intense, things like that, where I know I'm going to have to tap into, you know, carbohydrate burning. Um, so definitely using goo products during the training, um, if you walked into my house, you would see there's just like a whole shelf of supplements because um, I've been doing supplement research for a long time. That's been kind of my area of, of specialty. So I'm always looking for what can help with recovery, what can help with performance. Um, and the ketone ester specifically, I had started using one of our athletes, Jeff Browning, was yes. actually who introduced me to you all. Yeah. Um, he was using goo products and ketone esters. And at first, you know, the the marketing team and the, and the group that oversees kind of our elite athlete program, they came to me and they're like, well, you know, if is it is okay if jeff uses the hvmn like is that a competitive product and i was like no i don't see it as a competitive product like even the way you guys talk about it is like yeah use the ketones but also use carbs yeah. along with it because it'll actually drop your blood glucose levels um so i was like no no it's it's totally fine and then i really wanted to talk to you guys anyways so that's how we started yeah. our relationship but um yeah i knew that it would put you into a rapid state of of nutritional ketosis, and I was already always kind of in nutritional ketosis, so I didn't feel like I needed it for that purpose, but mostly for um, the cognitive things we've already talked about, but also for recovery. And then that that paper came out about yeah, how Peter
0: it Peter mm-hmm, in Belgium, yep,
1: can help with you know you know offsetting some of the overreaching symptoms and things like that. And I was like, well, I'm training my butt off. And so I absolutely should try this for, for recovery as well. And, um, and so I did, so I'd start using it, um, strategically even after workouts to kind of promote recovery and prevent overreaching, um, but I really wanted to use it on the mountain uh, for the cognitive effects, and so that's why I came to you and and asked if I could, you know, bring it up Everest essentially and and do some testing with it. And I I really feel like it it makes my brain just work better at altitude. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> yeah, we I think we have some actual unpublished data there. I mean, I think I think it's one of a paradigm that's super interesting, like the cognitive performance aspects of ketone esters. So I'm curious to get a sense of, you know maybe talking about the nutritional component up your ascent, you mentioned something about being super fat adapted was important, like I want to hear that story. And then two, it would be interesting in terms of, uh, yeah, what was that cognitive effect or what was your subjective experience with ketone esters or other products on on the ascent?
1: So I'm very fortunate in that I work with research and development um, at Goo. And so basically anything that I can dream up in my mind almost anything, they can at least help me kind of put together a rough... Prototype of it in the lab that we have. Um, And so for Everest, I actually did come up with a bunch of custom products for for nutrition. So we came up with a custom Everest bar, which is a very uh, calorie dense, but predominantly fat. So it was was a lot of like coconut butter, macadamia, um, cacao. Uh, Sounds pretty good. It was delicious. (laughs) Oh my God, it was so good. Uh, So we came up with a custom Everest bar. We came up with a custom drink mix kind of based on our our roctane line, which is carbohydrates and, and electrolytes and amino acids. So protecting your muscles as well. Um, but also adding ketone salts to that. Um, basically I was looking to put ketones anywhere I could get them in addition to, you know, using the ester. Um, and then we also did a custom gel with some, uh, added ketones to that. So all of these things I took up the mountain, um, again, I was very fat adapted. So I knew I could handle a decent amount of fat, even though at altitude, you tend to shift more into a carbohydrate burning state. Um, it's a more efficient fuel source than, than burning fat. So you just kind of do your body prefers it. Um, so I was definitely doing carbs like in the drink mix and the gel, but I had this bar that when I was moving kind of slowly between camps, I'd be carrying 35, 40 pound packs. So you're not moving super fast. And at altitude, you're, you know, one step, one breath. It's, it's, slow progress. But, right. uh, so yeah, I took all these custom products up there to test and those worked out really well. I took the the ketone esters. So I was taking about one or two uh, bottles a day. Um, and so I would just kind of take, I was actually dividing the, the bottle up. So I was taking like partial doses as I was moving throughout the day. So I'd take, you know, maybe, um, 10 grams at a time. If you look at the little, uh, markers on the bottle. I'd take about 10 grams at a time while I was moving. And yeah, it, you know, subjectively, I would take that and feel like I could just think more clearly. I did notice, you know, I hit base camp at 17,000 feet and we walked up to you know, 23,000 feet before we started using oxygen. And as I got progressively higher, it was uh, it was like things slowed down. Uh, and above, I guess, maybe 19,000 feet, I started feeling like I was walking in a dream or I was like outside my body watching myself walk or like things were in slow motion. So, you know, I would take the ester and feel like things got a little bit more clear, a little bit more sharp, like colors seemed less muted, things like that, you know?
0: You went behind your eyeballs again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So. You weren't playing a third, you know, third person RPG anymore.
1: Yeah, it's wild. It really feels like you're just outer body. Yeah. Um, So you know, I did all this objective kind of, you know, analysis of it. And I was like, wow, this is really helping. And and even I was with my guide, Lydia Brady, who's the first woman to ever summit ever. So that oxygen, super badass lady, Um, you know, I gave her a bottle to try. And she was just like, wow, this is incredible. Like, I feel really sharp right now. You know, we're sitting there at like 20,000 feet. (laughs) I have a video of it. It's pretty funny. She's just like, this is awesome. like, yeah, I know it works. Um, But we did take this or I did take this uh, cognitive function test system with me, which is like, it it almost feels like you're playing little brain games. Like if you've ever done like Lumosity or whatever that Mm. app is. Um, So you can test reaction time and uh, decision-making and things like that. So I did take that up the mountain. Unfortunately, it only made it to about 21,000 feet advanced base camp before it started kind of getting a little wonky on me. I think it didn't like the cold and the altitude so much. (laughs) But, uh, you know, we have that data. And so it'll be interesting to look at it once we have the analysis in, um, you know, how that actually uh, reflects when I took the ketone ester versus when I didn't and what altitude we're at. So that'll be exciting.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, it's super cold. Subjective experience. I mean, were you tar- in terms of objective measures? Sounds like you had the cognitive tasks to, to track. Were you targeting a level of ketosis as you were going up the mountain? Or was it just, I mean, I, I don't know if you were like, wanted to finger stick yourself at like 25,000 feet up in the mountain, but was that something that you were targeting or something that you were tracking?
1: I wouldn't say I was like targeting anything in specific. Going into it, I was like super ambitious. I'm like, I'm going to collect all this data, bringing all this equipment. Like I did bring my handheld ketone meter, like the Keto Mojo. So I was looking at ketones and glucose and hematocrit and hemoglobin. Um, But yeah, as I got higher, I was just like, I don't want to keep sticking myself. And like, yeah.
0: yeah, I got to just do this. And I don't want
1: to carry it up there (laughs) with me. So, um, but yeah, I would... I would be in sustained nutritional ketosis for the most part when I was testing. And like, you know, obviously when I was taking the ketone ester, yeah. I think I have a picture where it's like three millimolar, three right, point right. something. Um, so yeah. I, and, and I always felt better when I was right after taking the ester versus like not taking it, then I would feel a little bit more foggy and things like that. And then you get to 23,000 and you put oxygen on. And so you're just like, wow, colors are real. Like strawberries taste like strawberries. Like things are great. Um, yeah. So, yeah, then it kind of all shifted once you get oxygen on. But yeah. Um,
0: cool. Yeah. And then we touched a little bit about facet training. Um, any other specific techniques that you were implementing? Were you doing, I don't know, high intensity interval training? Sound like you were doing some visualization across certain important passes. Uh, anything else in terms of interesting techniques or tips or best practices for our listeners?
1: Yeah, around the the time I started working with, you know, the fasted training um, and working with the coaches. And so they had me doing a lot of these like muscular endurance workouts, which are both, you know, in a gym setting, there's like, it's plyometric based, you're wearing a weight vest. Um, so it's getting your legs used to taking like, an eccentric load, essentially, like it really hurts after the fact. It's the kind of workout that you get really sore from. Yeah. Um, so, that was some of my training. And then doing really heavy loaded carries up and down hills. So, like a thousand foot hill. And they had me, I was in Mammoth for the last three weeks before I left to get actual altitude. I found like this cooler. So, it's like a, a snow gully. And I was basically just making laps up and down. That was 65 pounds. It was like, like on a backpack. Fest. Yeah.
0: So, you're just like rucking.
1: Exactly um so lots of that 65 pound
0: rock up a thousand feet mountains or hills
1: they'd be like all right go for two hours i'm like okay and like a stair machine a lot of times that's that's badass
0: i mean that's tough like that's
1: it wasn't easy top
0: end military level like Like, I mean, that's 65 pounds a lot. That's
1: like, yeah, it's more than half my body weight. I mean, you're not (laughs) not a huge
0: person. I mean, that's, that's crazy.
1: I know I would check with them. I'm like, really guys, like we're doing 65 today. Yeah, go get it tiger. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, I'm just like
0: thinking like some of like the, like the special operators are probably doing like 50 pound racks. I mean, you're, and those are big dudes.
1: And the thing is on Everest, like you're not carrying that much weight ever. This is just to make me tough as nails and it worked. Like I I felt bulletproof. And, you know, when I wasn't in the mountains, I would have to do stuff like that on stairs, like at a gym, which was, oh my God, I can't tell you how much time I spent on that stair machine. They actually put a sign on it at one point, probably about a month before I left and it said, please limit your use to one hour at a time. Thank you. And I was like, that's That's for you yeah (laughs) definitely me so were you
0: just like wearing like a 65 pound ruck just like on that stairmaster for like three hours yeah
1: i'm pretty sure people just thought i was insane
0: (laughs) i just picturing it this this lady in the corner with half her body weight on her back just like on there for three hours straight
1: people started coming up and asking me they're like what are you training for because you're training for something obviously i would be like oh just a mountain like some some mountain i'm climbing uh (laughs) yeah i don't want to give it away But, okay, so aside from the training, uh, one thing I implemented with all of this Everest, uh, you know, lead up was uh, intermittent fasting and just time-restricted feeding. So being really strategic about that, and I and I got the the zero app to kind of track my fasting, yep. um, and I wasn't doing anything super aggressive, but I wanted to shut it down at least twelve hours a night was my goal. So like you know a twelve hour every day at least, yeah. and then on my kind of recovery day, I would do like more of a eighteen to twenty two hour fast. Yeah. Um, so just using that as a way to give my system time to to repair itself essentially so um and i still do that now i actually i really enjoy it yeah but i was Um, eating dinner at like five o'clock at night every night (laughs) yeah
0: i mean you're also when that means when you're eating you're probably eating a lot at at a time i mean because you're doing what it seems like around 20 hours a week of training and this is Mm -hmm. like very heavy training and you're Mm -hmm. constricting your eating window so Mm -hmm. i'm sure you had like pretty big meals
1: Uh, I mean, (laughs) I would try to get the calories in on days when I would have like a five hour feeding window. It was tough. You know, I would just be like, I I don't know if I can get, you know, a couple thousand calories in even. So I in the process, you know, whether it was from this is still open to debate. Um, whether it was from the training, whether it was from the, the restrict, time-restricted feeding or whatnot, um, I lost 20 pounds. And again, wow. I was never a big person yeah. ever. Like, you know, I maybe started at like 130. Um, Got down to 110. It, it, yeah. And wow. um, But the craziest part is, right? So when you lose weight, generally about 25% of weight loss comes from lean mass. Yeah. So from like muscle, yeah. right? Or connective tissue. Yeah. 95% of my weight loss was fat. I lost only one pound of muscle out of twenty. Wow! And I strongly suspect that it was, you know, not only like diet and being fat adapted and, and the fasted training and all that, but I think it was also some of the hypoxia. So living in the tent and the chamber um, does things. And I've been looking into this research. Uh, now I'm going into my PhD work, but yeah. seeing how hypoxic environments actually upregulate fat burning. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, it 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 was really fascinating. Some,
0: you know, growth hormone or something to retain the lean muscles. Issues, some, you know, response to the hypoxic environment probably as well.
1: Yeah. So that's uh, definitely an area of research that I'm super interested in now. And yeah, um, yeah, we'll see.
0: Man, so you were just like a super ripped, super strong, yeah, like person, just like just powering through tons of workouts and like eating massive meals when you're eating.
1: Yeah, it was crazy. So, I mean,
0: were you worried about injury? I mean, that's, I mean, in terms of overreaching, that's like you're pushing your body hard.
1: Right. And yeah, I mean, I got down to, I was also measuring via DEXA scan, um, you know, my body composition and everything like that. Um, again, I didn't really lose any muscle, which was right. awesome because so I what, what needed it. So what body fat
0: percentage? Were you like 10? Like? No,
1: you know, for women, it's a little different, right? So say, women yeah. have 12 to 13% is essential fat. Right. Like yeah. you need that or yeah. you, you, know, you can't reproduce and things like right, this. Right, right. Uh, I got down to 15. So okay. it, was, it was super lean. And even my coaches were like, go eat a hamburger. Like for real, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you need to eat some more. Uh, but yeah, so the leanest I'd ever been, the fittest I'd ever been, like the best fat burning I'd ever experienced, uh, everything was like, it was like all systems go, and I yeah. was ready, right? And the thing is, like the way I was doing this attempt, you have to wait for the weather to be right before yep. you head out, and yep. you don't wanna mess that up because you know then you're, you're not gonna get this two-week, you know, door-to-door Right, just
0: storm up there, then you gotta wait it out, and you're just stuck.
1: Right, so yeah. I'm fully trained, and I'm ready to go, and I'm like, I need to get out there. Right. And Adrian and Lydia, my guide, were already on the mountain, right, so they're in Tibet. And this is, they get out there in uh, mid-April, I believe. And my departure window tentatively was set for like May 1st. So May 1st rolls around and I'm ready to go. And I'm like sitting here in Berkeley. I'd been in Mammoth for three weeks just to like get some actual altitude. I came back ready to go. Bags are essentially packed. I mean, all my stuff is like on the floor when I say essentially packed. But um and they're just like, the weather is really bad here. Like, things are not looking great. Yeah, I remember
0: and- we were talking or trading emails back and forth. And it was like, you were just waiting. Like, okay, weather's not good. Or I'm just kind of twiddling my thumbs waiting. Terrible.
2: Right.
1: The worst, just like sitting there and I'm like trying to be at work and be focused and like, you know, do my thing. But I'm also trying not to like go crazy with training because I have to be ready to go at a moment's notice.
0: Yeah. Did you taper. I mean, I guess you just kind of were tapered off. You're like, okay, I'm going to just like recover as much as I can.
1: Yeah. So my coaches were like, well, you know, you're you're scheduled to leave any time now. So we're not going to do anything super aggressive, but you need to stay trained. Um, So we just did some maintenance work and things like that. But it was the hardest. I ended up waiting until... I flew out May 10th, but like 10 days of just kind of sitting there and waiting for the call to like get the on the longest plane or book, and a half ever. book my ticket. Like I didn't even have a, a flight booked. You know what I mean? I was just <laughs> like, what if they call me and I can't get a flight? Like, what are yeah. we going to do? And I missed the weather window and then this doesn't happen. Like, God forbid there wasn't a weather window. That was also something I was worried about. I was yeah. like, what if we just don't get one?
0: Yeah. So Well, you're just you're still super fit and jacked, so yeah. Go do like a bikini competition or something. I don't know. So okay, so let's talk about the actual summit day, because I think it was actually a very interesting day on the mountain. A lot of our listeners and folks probably saw that viral Mount Everest Mm -hmm. photo where you had this giant queue of people up until summit, and I believe I think mentioned the beginning of the conversation, like you know someone died on that on the mountain that day as well. Um, so that made headlines around the world and you actually summited that same day Mm -hmm. but on the completely opposite side of the mountain and you're alone walk us through that story and um, what that day was like I mean like the, uh, the emotional side as well as I mean the technical side
1: yeah you know it's it's wild because I didn't know about any of that stuff that happened on the south until after I came down um but the day that picture was taken with the crazy lineup um that was the day I summited but from the north um and so you know our summit attempt was we again were having really bad weather even when I got there um the weather had shifted we were anticipating a summit day of around May 20th Uh, which is why I flew out on the 10th. And then by the time I got there, things had changed. And they were looking more at like a May 24th, May 25th window. And I was Mm -hmm. like, crap, there's no way this like two week thing is happening. Might as well just like get set in, get comfortable. I'm going to be out here for like 16, 17, 18 days. Who knows if we get a a window because it was like super windy, super cold. Um, And because of that, um, the Sherpas who generally go up and fix the route, which means they put lines up so that if you slip and fall, you don't go like off the mountain entirely. Uh, they hadn't been able to get up to the top and on the South, they had already fixed the lines somewhere around May 14th. So people were able to summit before that. Um, but on the North side, they weren't up so nobody can climb, you know, without those being in place and you know, we were like, this isn't going to happen. So. We start moving up the mountain just because we want to be ready and in place when May 24th, 25th rolls around. We get up to Camp 2, which is at about 25,000 feet. Um, So, you know, 4,000 feet below the summit. And generally people will go up to at least Camp 3 and then make a summit push from there. And sometimes there will even be a Camp 4 on the north side. Yeah. Um, So So when you make
0: camp, it's like an overnight stay.
1: Yeah. So we get to Camp 2 and we see the possibility that on the 22nd, there might be a small weather window that we could attempt to do if they get the lines put up in time. And the Sherpas were planning on going up and finishing on the the 22nd, but prior to that, they had gone up and come back about five times unsuccessfully because of really bad weather and high winds. So we weren't sure if they were gonna be able to do it. Um, And so you know the night we were thinking of whether we should go for the 22nd or not, Adrian gets on the phone because he's at a different camp phone, I mean radio. He radios Lydia and I and he's like, you know, there's a small chance you could get the 22nd. This is the only way you'll be able to do this whole 14 day door to door thing. This is the only opportunity you have for that. But you'd have to start late because you need to give the Sherpas time to make it to the summit that they're fixing the ropes. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't guarantee that they're actually going to get there because they've turned back so many times. And you know, it's going to be a very long day because you have to go from camp two all the way up and then all the way back down instead of hitting camp three. So, you know, it's going to be a late day. It's going to be a long day and you might not be able, you might get up there and they might turn around and you have to come back down and that will be your only opportunity. Like there's probably not going to be another chance for you to go back up after this. So if you try this, it's risky, but it's up to you. And and
0: it's like a one shot in the, in the, purpose of that is that they don't want you to try like multiple summit attempts
1: basically you'd have to recover enough time and then like you know that wouldn't be enough time to make that second push if we tried right. for like because so it's so exhausting push. okay exactly yeah especially from camp two like it's and then just what's so much the
0: warm. nuance with that late start i mean if you end up too late is it just get too frigid too windy at night
1: Yeah. Generally people try and summit around dawn. So like, you know, five, six, seven in the morning, the latest, usually there's a hard turnaround for most people climbing at like 10am. They want you to be coming back down already because bad weather comes up just okay. like on any, you know. It's
0: not for tourist reasons of taking a photo at dawn. It's just no. like, you literally it's too dangerous for you to start too late.
1: Yeah, like weather deteriorates at the later it gets in the morning. So generally, like most people will have a hard turnaround of 10, maybe 11 a.m. at the latest, like okay. they want you coming back. Yeah. Um, so we, and most most of the time, in order to get that kind of timeframe, you have to start at like 10 o'clock the night before or something like that. Oh, so, wow. you know, in comparison, we started at almost 2 a.m. So very late start by Everest standards um
0: so how, how do you even time to sleep were you sleeping i mean it was just like oh God, i'm no. gonna try to sleep at six and then wake up at two or how, how did that even work
1: so we had been just like consistently moving up and mm. had moved camps like the three days prior with our packs and everything so it was like 35 40 pound uh, you know, pack carries for multiple hours. And so I was actually pretty tired even by the time we got to camp too. And then we made the call that we were going to go for it. Um, and it was already, you know, four in the afternoon by the time we made camp. And so, you know, I knew we had to leave really, really early. Um, we just tried to rest as best we could. I didn't sleep at all the night before the summer. I was just like, wow. I was too excited. I was too nervous. Like I just lay there. So you're
0: in your like, I guess, sleeping bag, just like yeah. eyes open being
2: like.
1: So, and you're in the sleeping bag, but yeah. you've got a mask on, so you can't really roll over. And there's like people <laughs> on the other side of me. And I was you're, like, you're yeah. like a little sardine. I was just like, oh my God, like, let's go. <laughs> like, <laughs> night before you go to Disneyland, yeah. you know?
0: So so before we gloss over it, so like talk, th- talk, talk us through the decision. I mean, obviously this was a big, important decision, potentially life threatening decision that you had to make a decision on? Was it just, I mean, was it an easy decision? Was it like, all right, I have this window, let's go for it? Was it like back and forth? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so Lydia and I were in the tent together when we got this call from Adrian. Yeah. Again, he was at a different camp, so we're sitting there and we were like, okay, give us a minute to think about it. And uh, I think both of us knew kind of immediately, like we we had to give it a shot, yeah. you know, like, I had done all this training for this purpose. Like this was the goal. Not that it had to be done this way, but I was like, you know, if there's ever a chance to like do something that's never been done before, like this is, this the, is it. This is it. Yeah. Let's go for it. Yeah. And yeah, I just knew we had to do it. So it took us like two minutes really. And we were just kind of like, yeah, we're going to go. Yeah.
0: Was there any consideration of mortality or or, or or risk?
1: I think in the back of my mind going into the entire trip, I knew that there statistically was you know maybe like a five percent chance of dying yeah maybe a little more just because of the way i was doing it um but i had already accepted that at that point i was like "Eh."
0: okay so i was just like all right i already assumed that this is this is a a dangerous activity i have a window let's go yeah okay
1: yeah i didn't think that like you know waiting would be any better of an option i just figured
0: right you're camping up there being cold and like slowly Dying. Deteriorating. Yeah, exactly. It's so I was like, let's just better. go. Okay. So, okay. So you start at 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. You were a sardine wide awake for eight hours, uh, trying to rest as much as you could. Um, talk us through Summit Day.
1: Yep. So it was myself, my guide, Lydia Brady, and two climbing Sherpa, um, Mingma and Pasang. And Mingma is a rock star, and this was his 15th summit attempt. Um, So he was kind of leading the charge, and then Pasang was heading up the rear, essentially. So um, the four of us left. Nobody else was climbing that day. Like, nobody else wanted to take that gamble, so, we were the only ones climbing. There was the, the rope fixing Sherpa, they were at a higher camp already. So, like, we knew they were somewhere up above yeah. potentially. Like, we couldn't see them yet. So, when we took off, you know, it was just us and it was really kind of peaceful. Um, the forecast was for some decent wind and yeah. really cold temperatures. So, I wore a bunch of extra layers under my giant down suit that I was wearing. Yeah.
0: Um, was temperature? Like uh, negative?
1: I mean it was probably like around zero maybe okay. negative 10 when we started yeah it wasn't that bad okay. and wind know, chill like windy yeah there was definitely some wind and yeah. i got like some windburn on the little bits of my face that were exposed yeah. um but it wasn't as bad as the forecast called for okay. so you know that comes into play later but i ended up being way overdressed <laughs> uh, so we started we got up to camp three at about 27,000 feet, maybe, like, a few hours later. And that's where some of, like, Adrian and, and some of his other uh, team were.
0: And this is a couple hours in. And, mm-hmm. like, I, I guess, again, sorry to interrupt here, but, mm-hmm. like, this is the middle of the night. So right. I, I didn't really headlamps. understand that, that you know, people are doing this in the middle of the night. So you were headlamps. Yeah. It's, like, visibility's low. You're just kind of, like, making sure you don't, like, step into a crevasse on accident.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, most of the time when you're climbing – high mountains you're getting what's called an alpine start so you're starting at like you know 11 p.m midnight something like that and you're climbing by headlamp for a good portion of the climb
0: okay so Uh, nocturnal climbing is pretty standard then yeah okay
1: yeah so we're climbing through the night and again because we started late we get to camp three it's about three hours later so the sun is starting to come out and we can actually see things which was really nice worked out in our favor because then i only had to wear the headlamp for a few hours um hit camp three about three hours later keep going from there, you hit this ridgeline and then you're going basically along this ridgeline, which is pretty exposed. That's where like really bad winds can come up. Um, That's where these features are called the steps. The three steps are found. So it's like these rock cliffs that you have to scale. Um, And that's a good portion of the route on the north side. And and definitely like the most technical part of the climbing on the north side is above 28,000 feet. So when you're kind of at your worst, you have to perform at your best. Uh, And that's why a lot of people don't climb the North, right? So for, to step back for a minute, about one third, the amount of climbers attempt from the North versus attempting from the South through Nepal. And there's a few reasons. So one, they issue permits more freely from the Nepal side, as we've seen. Um, It's a little harder to get permits from the Chinese on the Tibet side. Two, it's a little bit more exposed. um, So that ridgeline is very exposed. There's not a lot of protection from wind and from cold. So the weather can be a little worse on the North. Uh, and three, it's a little bit more technical higher up. So the worst part of the climbing is when you're at the highest altitudes versus the South.
0: So you're the most deteriorated and it's the most technical. So it's like a bad combination (laughs) or a risky combination, risky combination.
1: Um, so anyways, we hit the ridgeline and we're making pretty good progress. We figured it would be about nine to 10 hours to get to the summit from camp two. Um, and so you know, we're kinda going along and then we finally see the the rope fixers ahead of us. We're like, Great, they're they're making progress, like go guys, go, you know. (laughs) Lead the way. Right. So and at one point we even kind of stop and like they I think they like sat down to eat something and we're like, okay, we'll just like rest for a little bit so we give them time to get to the summit. But eventually we get to to the three steps, which is, you know, these rock cliffs that you have to go up. Um there's some rickety ladders in place that they put, uh, attached by ropes. Um, and you have to climb up those, which is the second step I knew was going to be the hardest part of the climb. And it's maybe a 50 foot or something like that cliff. And there's like three ladders that are attached by very precariously placed ropes. And, um, so you're in crampons, you're in this giant down suit where you can't see your feet. Uh, crampons are like spiky metal things that helps you stick to a mountain. Uh, and then you're wearing oxygen and you have your pack on with the oxygen canister. So you can't really turn your neck. Like visibility is terrible. Dexterity is terrible. You're wearing big puffy gloves. Um, so it's it's really kind of just hard to function, right? When you're climbing these these ladders. And so um, we get to that part. That was the part I had kind of in my mind. visualized would be the worst part of the climb. Um, turns out it wasn't, I mean, it was tough, but you know, we get above the second step and then there's the third step and that has like just been fixed maybe an hour before we get to it. And there's really not a lot of anchors, which is where they, an attachment point to the mountain. So just like long expanses of rope that are not anchored to anything, and, you know, some of them it's are a, attached, little flimsy a little, little flimsy yeah. rope, you know, like maybe the, the diameter of your finger, like right. your index finger. And that's what's keeping you on the mountain in the event that you fall. Right. Yeah. So we get to um, the final snow slope to the summit, maybe 500 feet below the summit. Um, the rope fixers had made it up there. We knew they, they'd finished. So they were actually coming down as we were heading up and they were, they were surprised to see us, honestly, like they didn't know that anyone was right behind them. Um, so, so they come down and we're going up and, um, you know, we're on putting our weight on this fixed line and all of a sudden like the rock anchor it's attached to, which is on the slope up above us just completely comes out of the snow and like comes tumbling down the slope towards us. And so like, not only is our rope loose, but there's this giant rock coming down towards us. And then there's like 10,000 feet of drop off below. You know, if we fall off this thing, like we are going and we're shock loading the line with the four of us on it. And that whole anchor system might blow, you know? So it was a really just intense moment. And we, we got out of the way of the rock. We like unweighted ourselves from the line, like unclipped, like refixed the rope to something else. But like, after that, I was like, we're the first people to be on these ropes. They just finished. Like, I don't even, now I don't even trust the lines are, like, safe. Like, yeah. what What if that happens again? Um, so, yeah, that last bit to the summit, I was just, like, on pins and needles, you know, like, thinking that.
0: That was a jolt? Yeah. So you weren't awake, that, Amy, you were definitely, okay, wow. Yeah.
1: So, that was probably the scariest wow. part of the, that climb, um, was just getting to that point and then, like, feeling like we, that could have been it for us. Yeah. Like, that that was a game over moment, right? Like if we hadn't gotten out of the way and if we had, yeah, so anyway. Was
0: there a moment where like, I'm done?
1: Like it, life flashing
0: <laughs> across your, like your history of life crashing your eyes or is that, were you just more shocked? Were you just trying to survive, get out of the way? Yeah, it was like, what very was going like
1: animal instinct, just like get out of the way, like move and and secure yourself to the yeah. mountain, right? Like, so Typically you'll you'll self-arrest with your ice axe and like dig your crampons in the points of your crampons yeah. into the snow slope so that yeah. you're like stuck to the mountain. Yeah. Um so it was very much that like training just kicks in and you just you assume the self-arrest or the rest position. Yeah. Um but yeah, it, it it happened so fast. Like in reality, it was probably a few seconds worth of time. But yeah. yeah. Um so Anyways, we, we continue on from there and make it to the summit. And by the time we get there, you know, the, the rope fixing Sherpas had gone down already. So it was just the four of us and we get to the summit and there's nobody else there. And I'm just like, what in the hell? Like there should be people here, you know, at least from the South side, because I know nobody is behind us on the North. And there was no one. We looked down the south route into Nepal and there was nobody there. And I wasn't even thinking at the time, probably because of hypoxia and being tired. But like it was pretty late in the day. You yeah. know, it's almost noon at this point. And by then everybody had come and gone already. But for a moment, I was just like, are we in the right place? Am I dead? <laughs> like, is this heaven? Yeah. <laughs> like, It's sunny. There's nobody up there. It's just us. It yeah. was like this total moment of you know zen to be pretty cheesy but it was just like perfect Uh, that's
0: incredible i mean one you you know you had kind of a near-death experience when you finally i guess cross that last step did you and it was like the final steps up was like a moment of elation like i'm i'm alive i'm gonna do it and then actually being on top of that mountain what did that I guess you you thought you might have died or been in heaven at that point. But, like, what was your, I mean, that's, like, you know, months and months of hard training to accomplish that last step.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's hard to describe, really. Like, I think I was so tired. And to be quite honest, like, this was the hardest thing I've ever done. Like, you know, I, I talk about it and it's, a, it's a short story when you're just explaining it out loud, yeah. but like I was exhausted okay. the entire day. Like we had been moving with our packs and like, by the time we got to camp three that morning, like three hours in, I was like, I'm pretty tired. This yeah. is going to be a battle. Like yeah. my body was physically tired. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, the whole rest of that summit day, I was just like fighting fatigue. And the other thing that happened, which I didn't touch on yet, but, um, this was the first time I was ever wearing an oxygen mask on a climb, you know? Um, And so there were things about it that I didn't realize. Like it's really hard to take off. And if you're wearing, you know, any sort of headgear or helmet or hood or anything, you can't really pull the mask too far away from your face. So it's really difficult to feed yourself, to Mm -hmm. get food in or drinks in and, um, you know, because it was extra effort and because I was so tired, I had all this you know, custom nutrition and this whole plan in place of like, how many calories I'm gonna get per hour and how I'm gonna do it. I was just too tired to feed myself. And so- It's too awkward
0: to just pull it off. Yeah, you can only
1: get like an inch gap maybe between like your mask and and your mouth. And so you'd have to like slip food in and I was just like, I'm too tired. (laughs) And like, I didn't wanna take my backpack off to drink my water. So that whole summit day ended up being- Fasted pretty much. Like I got maybe 200 calories in and a half a liter of water in 16 hours. So I was exhausted. Uh, we got to the summit and, and again, I was like, kind of just like, maybe I died or maybe this is a dream, but, uh, but yeah, it, it was a tough day. And, uh, so it was almost
0: a relief. It's like, I'm done. <laughs> I was, was like,
1: I'm halfway. I was like, Holy crap, this is amazing, but I'm only halfway. Yeah. And like we have so much longer to go and going down I it's knew It's probably harder. Yeah, going down any mountain is where most accidents occur where most people die because they're tired and, you know, they're excited and they just want to get down and yep. they've spent all of their energy getting to the top and yep. they don't save anything for the descent. Yep. So in my mind, I'm like already calculating. I'm like, okay, we're halfway. I have to have the energy to get back down. I'm exhausted. Yeah. I haven't been eating. I haven't been drinking. And I see these clouds building in, in the distant horizon, not even distant. Like they were rolling towards us. I'm like, the weather is changing and we need to get off this mountain. So like, you know, I enjoyed the summit for maybe 20 minutes before I was like, we got to get out of here. And you're I'm already, so, yeah, so you're
0: a pro. You're already calculating. So, okay, yeah. so you got 20 minutes up there. Yeah. So you have 20 minutes of maybe 10 minutes of enjoying it 10 minutes of planning
1: right (laughs) right but i was like so tired i didn't even take off my backpack i didn't pull out my like banner that i had planned like you know i was just looking back i'm like dang it i should have done that but at least lydia got some pictures of us and stuff like that but um so yeah so then i knew like you know you're halfway you got to get back down and i'm super tired and i'm underfed but surprisingly i didn't feel like i was gonna bonk i was just like physically like my body felt tired just fatigue muscle fatigue and things like that
0: um that was terrifying if you feel like you were bonked at the top it's like oh, oh my god yeah that, that, would have been that scary. yeah holy yeah <laughs> so, okay so you weren't you didn't feel like you're bonked but you no. were tired
1: yeah physically uh. tired um you know like things just like clipping and unclipping into the line was just exhausting like yeah. my fingers didn't even want to work with me i was just like oh my god so much effort right now um but yeah because of all the fasted training and everything and being so fat adapted like i never felt like i was gonna bonk or like you know mental energy wasn't there. So I think that's where the fasted training really saved my butt in this case. Um, so I was very thankful afterwards that we had done so much fasted training. Yeah. Uh, and now I know I have a whole new level of reserve that I didn't even know, you know, if I can do 16 hours on 200 calories, I'm like, shoot. Yeah.
0: On top of being calorically (laughs) deficit for like all the days before even getting to camp too. Yeah,
1: Yeah. Yeah. So pretty, pretty amazing stuff. Um, so yeah, so that was that was kind of some day. We went back down. We got to Camp Two. Um, by the time we got there, you know, Adrian had wanted us to go all the way down to Advanced Base Camp, which is at twenty one thousand feet. Yeah. We got to Camp Two where we had started from that yeah. morning, and I was like, "This is this is where we're stopping for the night." It was four yeah. o'clock in the afternoon. We'd been on our feet for sixteen yeah. hours moving, and I was like, "This is it." Yeah. So, um, I, oh, I mentioned I had overdressed, so I had sweated through everything. There's I was wet. So I'm wet. And the weather is getting cold. It's turning into night, and I'm like, all this clothing is going to freeze, yeah. um, including my, you know, my technology suit, which is tracking all of my uh, biometric everything. So like, yeah. pulse oximetry and blood flow and, and breathing rate. Um, I had to take everything off because it was wet and uh, <laughs> then it froze overnight anyways so we sleep for like four hours wake up again we knew we had to get on our feet and move because now that clothes the clock were all
0: frozen you just like you literally had to like break ice off your suit
1: no I mean I ended up putting some of those things just in my pack and then like changing into it it borrowing some other layers okay, from other okay, people okay. that were like okay. yeah anyways <laughs> so the clock is ticking I'm like we have to get we have to get out of here like tomorrow there's going to be a car waiting for us at base camp like we have to move so the next day we get up it's a you know a really early start and we have 8000 feet to descend in like 20 miles or something to get back to base camp um so the next day ends up being another 13 hour day on our feet Damn. uh again underfueled i didn't really want to stop and eat or, or like pause cuz i knew we, we just had to push so yeah ended up doing another 13 hours on maybe like, you know, a few hundred calories, something like that. Uh, so another long day we get to base camp cars coming for us two hours later, eight hour drive to the airport, 30 hours of travel later, I get to SFO airport one hour before the two week timeline cut off. <laughs> and that was, that was it.
0: That's incredible. And when you finally landed back at sfo were you just like wow did that actually happen were you like i'm like yes i'm a badass like what did it feel like when you're finally done i mean it sounds like it was probably just non-stop just traveling mm-hmm. going back when did it just, when did it hit you
1: i don't i mean i don't even know if it's honestly even hit me it was so fast in the grand scheme of all the preparation like yeah. the two weeks that actually took to climb it, that it didn't feel like it happened at first and and I came back and I didn't you wouldn't have known like I didn't have Typically when people go and climb Everest, yeah. they'll lose like 15 20 pounds even right. like a lot of it muscle mass right. right, and they look beat up. They're like, you know Their face is all like burned where the goggles weren't like right. raccoon face I had like a couple of windburn marks on my cheeks and like a little Mark on my face from where the mask was rubbing right. um, but other than that, I didn't lose any weight. I didn't lose any muscle. I measured with a DEXA so yeah. like two days later. Um, I I looked completely normal. I felt completely normal. I was tired. But like, yeah, you wouldn't have known I just climbed Everest. Yeah. And uh, it, it was so fast. It felt like it didn't happen. But yeah, getting home and and my family had driven up from San Diego to surprise <sighs> me at the airport. And, and some coworkers came yeah. to to meet me. It was just like... Uh, you know, I'm not a crier, but I I definitely had a moment where I just like broke down crying and I was just like, Oh man, I can't believe this has been crazy. And it was just like so much preparation went into it and to like get back and, and realized that we made this crazy 14 day thing happen um, against all odds. Like honestly, I didn't think it was gonna happen even when I was on the mountain and then it all came together with one hour to spare. Like I even booked my ticket at base camp that night and for some reason I got upgraded to business class and so I was just like, wow, the the universe is working with me, man. (laughs) It's a nice
0: business class. That's a big long international flight. So it's a good welcome home. (laughs) Totally. I mean, it sounds like the recovery was actually pretty quick. I mean, but I mean, that's astounding. I mean, you're essentially under caloric for, you know, long periods of time there. But you felt like recovery, everything in terms of fatigue, injury, you came out spiffy.
1: Yeah, I mean, relatively unscathed. Yeah. I was tired, but, you know, day two after I got back. Nothing I- sore, just like. Not even right, yeah, and like you know, we descended eight thousand feet, and you'd think like your quads would be sore right. from like all of the downhill, and no. Yeah, just
0: even for like a day hike. I mean, that's like a big hike, eight thousand feet. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, like a sixteen-hour day followed by a thirteen-hour day, and like I was, I was pretty good, and I like started running again after I got back, maybe two days after i got back and like called my coaches that week and was like hey can we like can we start training and they were like can you just rest and chill out for a little bit they're like maybe two or three weeks take off <laughs> I, I couldn't sit still so yeah it was it was impressive how quickly i bounced back and like i really just uh got kind of back into training wow right after i got back I my mean,
0: testament to your i mean a lot of your discipline right i mean you just i sound like that was a, you know you're super fit like it's not like that wasn't even a Taxing is mainly just like a a mental and a weather risk as opposed to a physical risk
1: Well, I think it's also the way we did it too, right? Like spending two weeks above 5,000 meters or 17,000 feet versus spending two months like your body is just not exposed to everything for as long Right. Um, it's not exposed to hypoxia for so long. You're not exposed to other climbers and their germs You're not exposed to like foods that may not be prepared as well as, as they could be like I had many friends on the south side you know that same season at the same time and like for instance one of them he was there for seven weeks of his you know two-month rotation getting ready to climb the mountain um and got pneumonia two days before at camp two had to be evacuated by helicopter and that was it
2: yeah
1: and i'm just like man doing this faster is just so much better in so many ways like your body doesn't break down as much like You know, you're not away from friends and family that long. You don't have to take as much time off of work. Like there's just so many benefits to doing (laughs) it faster. I'm not saying you have to do it in two weeks, but if you can do it in a month like they're doing with Alpenglow, like, yeah, save yourself some.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is like the four-minute mile record. You're going to just like break people's minds. Like this is the new paradigm. Maybe people will follow your your path here. Any lessons or takeaways from this journey, from this process that – Either you are taking away as you move into you know future adventures, whether that's with other physical challenges or through day-to-day civilian life, you know, at, at, at a company. Um, any broader lessons? You feel like the your understanding of yourself, your understanding of how you can push your body. Did that? Did, did something change there, or was it just like, okay, this is another checklist off of my bucket list of all the crazy things I'm gonna do with my life?
1: Yeah. I mean, so many things. I, I think I learned that I'm a lot more resilient than I thought, um, that I can withstand a lot more, uh, you know, suffering, a lot more deprivation, a lot more everything than I even thought possible. And that, you know, my body is capable of doing pretty amazing things that I wouldn't have, have thought possible. Um, and so I wanted, you know, always push things further and and see maybe where that line is but uh you know there's always danger in that right but <laughs>
0: don't go into full madness right right
1: um so i think that's one takeaway is that just like you know the human body is incredible and and you know every time you do something where you're like i don't know if if that's possible for me and then you do it it's like well what else is possible right um so definitely it drives me to want to you know push harder train more, find other crazy things to be part of, which is always, there's always something in the works. Right. Yeah. Um, but you know, from a science perspective, um, the data I collected with the, with the suit, the Astroskin suit that I wore, um, we actually did get IRB approval. Um, and I'll be publishing that data, uh, you know, later this fall, hopefully. So working with researchers at Cal state, uh, Sacramento. And so I think, Getting that data and analyzing that data is going to kind of open up new avenues and inform some of my PhD work. Um, So just you know, diving more deeply into extreme environmental physiology and nutritional interventions and yeah. how, you know, like where that interplay is and how you can kind of optimize the body to withstand some of these environmental stressors like heat or cold or altitude. Um, so that's one of the big takeaways. It's just like a renewed sense of like fascination with
0: it. I mean, this is also just super cool. I mean, just thinking about folks doing PhD or, or, or graduate work, what, what's the likelihood or what's the opportunity to have your own body be a hypothesis generating tool right and it's pretty cool that this could help inform some of your research direction yeah and any early preliminary data i know when we're talking a little bit beforehand that this is like tons of data that you're collecting have you had a chance to get any insight or any particular direction that you're most interested in in, in looking at yeah i think you know some of the
1: the pulse oximetry data um so looking at like how much oxygen your blood is carrying Mm -hmm. um so i was able to monitor that like continuously in real time from from you know forehead sensor um i'm actually pretty blown away and i was even comparing it with the 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 fingertip variety that most people will use um seeing you know the variation in in what you're getting from the forehead sensor versus the 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 fingertip sensor, and then just kind of seeing how that changes over, you know, over activity or, you know, over just the course of climbing the mountain and like what it does at night is pretty interesting data so i'm i'm curious to see kind of how that fluctuates with each of those different parameters but right. I'm, i think that's one of the more fascinating parts of it and well, of like course
0: even like ketone esters or how you fuel that could be interesting as well in terms of oxygen status <laughs> <Yeah>. right <laughs> right
1: yeah, yeah see what what your nutrition supplement yeah. does but um i haven't even looked at the the cognitive data that i collected yeah. below twenty three thousand yet but i'm hoping that'll be some pretty cool stuff too so like using the esters and and just you know increasing altitude and things like that but um There's just so much data. Downloading one of these files is taking days. I'm like, oh my God, how are we even going to sort through this? And I have like a couple months to get it ready in time for ACSM. But anyways, uh, yeah, I'm excited.
0: Cool. So as we wrap up here, I know that, you know, I always like to ask folks if you had infinite resources and infinite population, what kind of study would you want to run? And, And maybe taking that to a little bit tailored to your specific experience, was there any markers or any devices if, if it could be completely invented out of nowhere that you wish you had tracked or tracked better uh on your attempt
1: yeah wow um gosh there's i wish i could measure just everything and everything possible but um i would love to see kind of what the impact is on the gut mi- microbiome mm, um, that was one of the things i had wanted to do for this particular trip
0: take poops on the mountain well there's that you can get like cheek swabs and
1: things um but yeah so that would be fascinating to see how you know hypoxic stress changes the gut microbiome yeah um I would love to look at some genetic components to adaptation. So looking at like hypoxia inducible factor, um, being able to look at that and see like if the hypoxic tense system actually affects that at all Mm. because it's it's not quite the same, right? So the hypoxic tense, it gives you lower oxygen, but it doesn't give you lower pressure, right? So it's not exactly a perfect mimetic of a high altitude scenario. So, you know, there's some controversy over whether they actually work or not. And and that's the scary part too. Is like I'm going into this and I'm like, you know, a lot of people think that this is all just, you know, not going to work. And yeah. I'm going to get to 17,000 feet and I could just pass out and like, <laughs> that could be the end of the trip.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but for pre- previous experience, I kind of had a good idea it would work. But um, I'd love to be able to see and measure just some like transcription factors to see if the hypoxic tense system touches some of these things that we know altitude affects. Um, so that would be some great data to have.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. So I know that you mentioned that, well, I guess it's almost time to think about 2020. Um, I guess Antarctica is on that list. I mean, what other adventures uh, are on your radar? Um, And it sounds like Antarctica will be the last content. What's what's, what's next after that?
1: Yep, so I mean, I've already planned Antarctica because that's just who I am, so I'll be heading down there in December and um, I will uh, summit in January 2020 so that'll be my last of the seven summits but you know along the way with this whole seven summits on seven continents thing I've created other goals obviously and been climbing other peaks just you know not on that list so started doing you know the highest volcanoes on each continent so I'll be doing the highest <laughs> volcano in Antarctica also doing the south pole um, I'd like to head up and do the North pole if I can, before it disappears and becomes, you know, unreachable by, by land, right. You'll be swimming there eventually pretty soon, not too far from now. Um,
0: or just have your yacht pull up.
2: <laughs> right. All right, done. Go yeah.
1: Home. Uh, so there's always something in the works and, you know, then beyond that, who knows, maybe the 8,000 meter peaks, uh, you know, K2 is the second highest, mountain in the world but by far more dangerous than yeah, more than difficult. everest yep. and more difficult um and you know i probably would have never even considered that previously but who knows i think anything's possible at this point
0: cool well how do we stay track i mean are you do you post updates on social um any anything that we should follow in terms of all your adventures
1: yeah i i'm kind of bad about social media, but I do have an Instagram. So it's at Roxy mountain girl, uh, MTN girl. Uh, and so I do post, you know, about adventures and things like that. That's primarily what I use that for. Um, goo energy they usually support projects and so there's always updates about um my trips and things so they even had like a live tracking of this everest trip which was pretty cool so gooenergy.com you can usually find updates about trips and things like that there um and yeah there will be some exciting news coming out pretty soon about uh this antarctica trip so you know stay tuned
0: awesome roxanne really a a really fun conversation thanks for doing this
1: thank you so much for having me this has been great thanks for tuning in this week everyone if you want to learn more about hvmn and our offerings visit www.hvmn.com pod also by writing a review on our itunes page and sending a screenshot to podcast at hvmn.com we'll hook you up with 15 dollars worth of hvmn store credit our last shout-out goes out to our listener survey, which lets us know who you are better so we can continue making episodes you find most valuable. Visit go.hvmn.com podcastsurvey podcast survey for that survey. It'll only take a few minutes, and new submissions are eligible for an HVMN ketone giveaway. Until next time, eat well, train smart, and live your life.